morning and glad that you're here to join us uh, for our service this morning and we are kicking off our summer series called questions jesus asked volume two and we had such a blast with this series last summer that pastor dave decided hey we should do it again this summer and there were so many questions that jesus asked that we didn't get to that i'm glad he did because we have a great question to look at together this morning and what makes this morning even more special is that we have our kids with us for a family Sunday. And let me just say, I absolutely love family Sundays because I believe it gives, gives us a clear picture of God's kingdom. Young and old together, uh, gathering together in community, worshiping, growing together. And I think it's just a beautiful thing to see the church together as a body. And so if that child next to you gets a little bit restless, it's not their fault, it's probably mine, I'm probably being boring. Um, but if they do, give them some grace, take a deep breath, and remind yourself this is kingdom. This is kingdom this morning, that we're all together, gathering together. And maybe we should be a little bit more restless like the kids, because scripture says that in order to enter the kingdom of God, we must become like a child, right? But that's a sermon for another time. And kids, if you did not pick up your coloring activity they are on the back corner there, so if you want to go right now, I won't bother me. You can go grab one of those, get some crayons, work on that. If you haven't gotten it yet, you're welcome to do that. But before we get to our question this morning, I have another question for you all, and it's hopefully a fun one. And the question is, who here, and you can raise your hands in a moment, but who here has or has had a nickname at some point in your life? Raise your hand. Pretty much everybody. A lot of people have had nicknames at some point in their life, and nicknames are interesting because they take many shapes and forms, and they occur for a variety of reasons. And some nicknames are more common. I think I have a slide of just different types of nicknames, if it's here or not. But some nicknames are a little bit more common. And these are things like the pet nicknames, the terms of endearment, and these are things where you call someone like, you know, buddy, or if it's someone you, you love or care about, you call them honey or sweetheart if it's your spouse, or someone you're dating may call them babe, love, or darling. And these are names we use for people we care about, right? Unless you're in a diner then everyone is a hun or a sweetheart in that location. Um, some nicknames are a little bit more practical. You get the name shorteners, and that's if your name is, for example, if your name is Robert, you may go by Rob or Bob, or if your name's William, you may go by Will or Bill. And we use those to just make it simpler to communicate who we are, right? My wife, uh, she goes, when she calls for takeout orders, um, she'll usually use a, a fake name like uh, Ellie or Emma, because the name Alinka is confusing for us as Americans to pronounce for some reason. And so when I go to pick up our takeout order, I have to kind of guess which one of like the four names is the right one. Is it my name? Is it her name? Is it one of the fake names? And eventually I get it right. And if they ever look at me too string, I just say, hey, my wife, she has multiple personalities. I don't know which one I'm picking up for this morning. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I didn't say that. Um, some nicknames are a little bit more gross, like the cringe couple nicknames. You know, this is where it's the step above terms of endearment. You know, you're standing in line at the grocery store and that person behind you goes, hey, apple pie, honey bun, sweet cheeks. And at first you're like, oh, it must just be the grocery list. You know, apple pie, honey buns from the hostess section, and then they get the sweet cheeks, and you're like, oh, this just got a little strange. So you got those nicknames. But I think my favorite nicknames of all are the, nick are the nicknames with the backstory. And these are names that kind of have like an inside joke layer to them. You had to have been there to understand them. Um, like something happens, and you're forever known by that one thing. Are any of those backstory people here this morning? 
one, a couple of them, few of a few of you people, they tend to be more common with men, right? Like everyone knows a guy with just a strange name, you know, whether it's Meatball or something like that, you know, hey, Meatball probably has some strange pasta story from high school that he can never let go. But you know, for the, for the wives in the room, you probably have a friend of your husband's who you don't actually know their real name. You know them as Meatball. And you find yourself one day talking to Meatball's wife and you realize, hey, Meatball's name is actually Joe. And so you go back later that day and you say, hey, hey, honey, I was talking to Joe's wife. And he's, he's who? I don't know a Joe. And you say, Meatball. He goes, oh, yeah, I know Meatball. But those are nicknames. They're fun, but they can also be embarrassing. And if they are embarrassing, one might find themselves trying to move beyond the name. You know, Meatball is a fun name in high school, maybe even college, but not so good on a job resume. And the same goes for our reputations. We spend a lot of time worrying about our reputation or our identities that we are trying to build. And what's difficult, though, is that once you develop a reputation or you have an identity, it can be hard to shake that thing. And the reason for that is our minds, our brains, they're unintentionally biased in order to conserve its energy. Psychologists know this as the primacy effect. Our brains have a tendency to remember the first piece of information that we encounter better than the information presented later on. And so because of this, the first impressions that we make are way more important than we know. Yet you and I know that's not fair. We shouldn't be remembered by our first impression. We shouldn't be defined by a single moment. Everyone makes mistakes. We all have those embarrassing moments. But sometimes those mistakes follow us through life and they could become a part of our reputation and our identity. But in our passage this morning, we see this very thing at play. Except when Jesus meets a woman with a reputation, he doesn't hold it against her. Instead, he sees her, he recognizes her, and he chooses to love her. And this morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 4, specifically verses 7 through 26. You're welcome to turn there now if you have a Bible or pull it up on your phone. It'll be on the screens later too. But it's in this passage where Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at a well. And he asks her the question, this is our question for this morning, will you give me a drink? Now before we read, though, I want to give you some uh, context into the subculture that's going on in this passage. There's some things at play that are important to keep in mind in order to fully understand what's going on in this passage. And so the first thing is that during Jesus' day, even before and after his time on earth, the Jewish people and the Samaritans, they had a very tense relationship in that they really didn't have much of a relationship at all. They did not get along. They did not like each other. If you go in the New Testament epistles, you'll often see the Jews and the Gentiles. They also have some tensions there. Well, the Samaritans, they were almost like a subset of Gentile, except that they had some shared religious framework with the Jews that quickly fractures once you dive into the depths of their beliefs and practices. And there are two specific differences between the Jews and the Samaritans that I want to point out this morning because they come up in our passage. And the first one is that they had a difference in their holy books. The Jews, they had the Jewish Bible, which is basically our Old Testament that they believed, they followed, they learned from. Where the Samaritans, they only had or they only followed the first five books 
of the Jewish Old Testament, which we call the Pentateuch. It's our first five books of the Bible. So that was one of the first uh, differences, and you could see how that could be some tension there, right? Because the Samaritans, they only believe so much of what the Jews have to be true. The second difference was in their holy sites. For the Jews, they believed that the temple was to be in Jerusalem. That was where they were to worship, where they were to gather. Whereas the Samaritans, they believed that Mount Gerizim was the place where the temple should be. Because it was there where Moses blessed the Israelites as they entered, the Can entered into Canaan, which was the promised land. And it's also where it's believed that Abraham built an altar. So there's two differences in these holy sites that are important to both groups. And because of these differences and many others, the Samaritans were viewed as lesser to the Jews. Jews would do everything they could to not have to eat with a Samaritan. They would go out of their way to avoid the Samaritans. Jewish men in particular would especially not interact with a Samaritan woman, especially in their patriarchal culture. The Jews would do anything they could to simply avoid the Samaritans. In fact, a generation later from our passage, we find out that the Jews, they actually developed a law declaring that Samaritan women were perpetually ceremonially unclean. In other words, if you were a Samaritan woman, by Jewish law, you were forever unclean. There was no hope for you. And you were someone that would be avoided forever by the Jews because you were not clean in their eyes. And so with that in mind, our passage, it finds Jesus traveling from Judea to Galilee, and this long journey takes him through the Samaritan city of Sychar. And he arrives there around noon, which what's interesting about noon is that it would have been the hottest time of day. So Jesus, he's tired, he's thirsty, he's hungry, and when they get into Sychar, he says to his disciples, go, find us something to eat, I'll wait here by this well, maybe get some water, and I'll see you guys in a little bit. And that brings us to our passage this morning. I want to read it together. This is verses 7 through 9. And it says this, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And so she said to Jesus, You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now, before we go further, I want to point out a couple more things. And the first is that it's strange that this woman will be drawing water from a well at the hottest time of day. On top of that, it's also strange that she was alone in drawing water from a well. Usually, women would go together to the well as a community kind of a thing, together, and not at the hottest time of day. So... It raises the question, why is she here at this time, and also, why is she alone? Now, we can't say for certain, but it's possible, very likely, that knowing this woman, that maybe she chose this time of day because she had some public shame. And she chose the hottest time of day because it, she knew it was a time when there would be no others there at the well. She would avoid interaction with others. She was there alone. And later in this passage, it will actually tell us why she asked him shame, and I'm going to give it to you now. If, if you don't want it to be spoiled, cover your ears. But the reason for her shame is that she had more husbands than traditionally was viewed as, accept as acceptable. And she's currently living with a man who wasn't her husband. That's what the text tells us. 
Now, there's a lot of speculation around this woman that you may have read about or heard about from other sermons or pastors or books you may have read, and I'm not saying that they're wrong, but what this passage doesn't say, and I know we have kids in the room, so I'll be a little bit more discreet, is that she didn't sell her services to men. And there isn't any mention that her divorces were even her fault. Could any of those things be the case? Sure, it's possible. There's some, there's some things here that can maybe point to that if you, tie the, if you make those connections. However, John doesn't directly say any of these things from what we get in the passage. So I'm going to approach it this morning more at face value of what we see here in the passage. And if someone says something differently, they're not wrong, but it is a more speculative approach, which is okay since there are some things that point to that. So we know that she's shamed. We know that she's had five husbands when rabbinic tradition or the opinion of the rabbis was that you could have no more than three. And we also know that she's living with a man which would have been against the Jewish law, which would have been something that is wrong. But what's interesting about the five husbands is that if you actually look at the Jewish law, there is nothing against having more than three husbands. It was just looked down upon. So if her husbands had simply died or passed away, then she wasn't actually, there was no sin in that regard. The only sin would have been in her living with this other man. So depending on info that we don't have, she could have simply, by Jewish law, not really been living in sin besides living with this man. And the only thing that we can point to her being outside of the law, once again, is that she was with this guy that wasn't her husband. And this is conjecture, but I think it's fair since traditionally we paint this woman in a pretty negative light. She might have just really had a rough life where her husbands passed away. And because she had a lot of husbands, she was looked down upon by her society, by her community. And so when she met this new guy, she might have just realized, hey, all my husbands have passed away. What's the point of marrying again? He might just pass away. And, and no one even accepts me anyway. So what's the point of actually me getting married this time around? Now, once again, it's conjecture, but we have the two extremes. Maybe it's more in the middle. But all in all, it doesn't change what's happening in our passage. Because Jesus sees this woman, he acknowledges her, and he asks her to give him a drink. And when he asks this question, it startles her. She's flabbergasted that this Jewish man who was supposed to avoid her at all costs, because she's not just a Samaritan, gasp, she's a woman. But he sees her, he speaks to her. And he asks her for help. And she's surprised because Jesus, for some reason, this, this Jewish guy seems to be above the bias of the Jews. And what I love about this interaction is that in this moment, in this beginning interaction with Jesus, she sees him as this weary traveler who can't even get himself a drink of water. But very soon she will see Jesus in the light of his true glory as the one who can restore her identity that has become tarnished, the one who sees her for who she truly is. And so the first thing that I want you to see from our passage this morning is that Jesus sees her. He doesn't look away, he doesn't avoid making eye contact. He sees her, he engages her in conversation. He knows that she's a Samaritan. He knows that she's a woman, obviously. He knows that she has baggage because he's God, yet he chooses to see her, to engage with her without any preconceived notions. And the interaction continues. I want to read the next four verses, 10 through 14. It says this, Jesus replied, 
if only you knew the gift that God is for you, the, God, the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, don't you, do you think you're actually greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjo enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again, and it becomes a fresh bubbling spell with, spring within them, giving them eternal life, and I'm going to drink some water for myself. For us, reading this encounter now, we see that the metaphor is pretty clear. You know, Jesus is simply saying that the, the well that he has, the water he gives, it's not an actual literal well, it's eternal life that gives us purpose for today and hope for tomorrow. But the woman has not quite caught on to what Jesus is saying. She thinks he's talking about a literal well. That's why she mentions the bucket and the rope and, and all this, which if he was actually talking about a spring, it could be 100 feet deep. And so she sees Jesus as almost this cheap charlatan who's basically saying, hey, I'm going to build a well. And she's looking at him as, you can't even get yourself a drink of water. You're too tired. What are you talking about? But when Jesus says this, to her, she responds in verse 15 by saying, please, sir, give me some water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Now, we don't know if she's saying this sarcastically because Jesus has said this crazy thing in her mind, or maybe she has some slight hope that maybe he's actually being honest, and he has this whole crew coming to build a well later that she doesn't know about, and she'll never have to go to this well again because she'll have enough water from this mega well he's building. She doesn't know, but either way, she's intrigued. But Jesus takes it one step further, and he asks her about her husband. I want to read verses 16 through 20 together, and it says this, Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, You're right, you don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is, only the, is the only place to worship while the Samaritans claim it is here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? When Jesus asks her about her husband, it's probably true that she gets a little bit uncomfortable, and so as opposed to saying, yeah, I've had five husbands, she says, I don't have a husband, which is true. She doesn't at that point in time. She's trying to deflect the attention off of that spot in her life that is pretty sensitive. But Jesus knows the truth. He knows that she's had husbands, that they've, they're not no longer in her life, whether they're divorced or they're passed away. And he knows that the man that she is with is not her husband. But Jesus, knowing these things, he doesn't just see her. He knows her. And he points out the biggest sin or flaw that she would see in her life. And he brings to light the things that she is trying to hide, the thing that causes her to avoid interaction with others, the thing that brings her to the well at the hottest time of day. He calls it out. And when he calls it out, she, she knows that he must be some type of prophet. And it's interesting because remember, the Samaritans, they only had the first five books of the Jewish Bible, so the only frame of reference for a prophet for them would have been Moses. And we know that Moses is a pretty important guy, right? So to con compare Jesus to a prophet who the, her only from a reference is Moses is a pretty big deal, is a pretty big thing to say. 
before we move on, I want to remind you once more that I want you to see he doesn't just only see her, but he also knows her. And he knows the exact thing that she sees as a flaw. And he calls out that thing that has changed her whole life. In fact, it's ruined her life because she doesn't even have a friend to go with to get water at the well. She's isolated, she's alone. All she has is her reputation. And no one is willing to look past it to see who she truly is. To even ask what brought her to this place in her life. She's an outcast with even her own people. But here is this man who should hate her, but yet he sees her. And he knows what she's been through in life. And he still sees her, he still knows her. And she doesn't really know what to do about it. It's not very comfortable. Because she quickly asked Jesus the question about Jerusalem versus Mount Gerizim, which remember is a big theological difference between the Jews and Samaritans. Maybe she's trying to change the subject because it's getting a little bit too sensitive or, or perhaps she recognizes that Jesus is some type of prophet which doesn't really fit with her belief system and so she's asking him this point of contention to kind of understand a little bit more. We don't know, but Jesus responds with these next few verses in verses 21 through 24. I wanna read this to you again. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For, for, for salvation comes to the Jews, but the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus says three big things here in this passage. The first is that both Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim will no longer be places of worship. And this is big, once again, because those two places were central to both, both groups, to both people. Uh, the second thing he says is that salvation springs from the Jews, not the Samaritans, which can seem a little bit harsh at first because this is a Samaritan woman, but, remind, but remember that what he's saying is that the Jews are the vehicle of, of the revelation of who God is. They know the Father. They have the whole Old Testament demonstrating what God is, who he is, how he cares for them. They're the revelation of that. And not only that, but Jesus knows that, hey, I am the Messiah, so I know that I'm Jewish, and that's how I'm, we're gonna bring salvation to the world. Uh, number three, he says that the new worship to the Father will render the Jew and Samaritan divide obsolete. You see, true worship, it is not attached to a shrine, location, or people but to true devotion to the Father. If I can make a quick rabbit trail, it teaches us that we don't come to church, we don't come to K-First on a Sunday morning because we need a place to actually worship. We come to K-First on Sunday morning to worship with other believers, to gather in community. Because we can worship through our lives, we can worship every moment that we live our lives. God isn't tied to a location. He is with us in relationship. And so when Jesus tells her that we will worship, or we are, we can worship in spirit and in truth, what Jesus means by the truth is he's simply saying that I am the truth. 
as Jesus, as the Messiah, as the one who's gonna bring the gospel to fruition. This is the truth. Just as Jesus says in John 1, 1, that he is the word, he's saying that he is the truth. So we worship in Christ, our, our worship is centered on him, and that spirit component that he speaks of is that we worship out of the supernatural life that we enjoy. We worship out of our relationship with God. And so when Jesus explains this to her, the woman realizes pretty quick that he's saying some messianic things. He's hinting about the Messiah. And so she says in the next verse, hey, gee, hey, hey stranger, I know the Messiah. I know that he's coming. And I know he's the one who will be called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. But when she says the word Messiah, Samaritans would call their Messiah, they would call him, call him the Teheb, which means to restore. He's the restorer. And they believe that the Teheb or the restorer, the Messiah, would come one day and he would reveal all things and he would bring restoration to their people. And so the woman, she's beginning to catch on with what Jesus is saying. She knows the Messiah is coming and so when she says this, this is verse 26, Jesus responds and he says, I am the Messiah. You see, Jesus saw her, he knew her, and by saying that he was the Messiah, he is basically saying that I love you. I am here for you. I am the one who has come to restore, to reveal, and I will give you water that will quench your thirst forever. And once the woman heard this, she realized that this probably is the Messiah and she ran and she told everyone she could find in her village that the Messiah was here. This woman that was afraid of coming across someone on her journey to the world decides, I don't care, I'm gonna go right now and talk to everyone that I can that there is someone here that they need to meet. And when the city heard about Jesus, they came to him and they begged him to stay with them the Samaritans begged this Jewish man and his Jewish friends to stay with them. And so he did for two whole days. And many in that village chose to follow Jesus and live their lives for him. It's a beautiful story. Why did this happen? Because Jesus saw them, he knew them, and he loved them. And here's a truth for us this morning is that Jesus sees you, he knows you, and he loves you. And some of us here this morning need to know that Jesus sees you. You're not an afterthought. You're not too far removed from him or too far gone. He sees you for who you truly are. He doesn't see the stereotypes, the biases that are forced upon you. He doesn't see the reputation or identity others have placed upon you. He also doesn't see the expectations and persona that you've built in order to meet some inherent expectations or to be successful in the way that you deem to be successful. He sees beyond your mistakes, your failures, your areas of weakness, the false opinions that you believe about yourself, and he sees your heart. He sees what you're truly longing for in this life. He isn't judging. He isn't looking at you with condemnation. His eyes are full of love, compassion, and grace. And he sees you for who you are. He sees a child inside of you, and he wants to bring that joy out of you once again. Because nothing is too big or too irrelevant for God's love. Nothing you can do can make God love you any more or any less than he already does right now.
His love is not conditional. He sees you, the real you, maybe even the you that you no longer see. A person who matters, who's valuable, and is worthy of his love because you are his child. But he doesn't just see you. He knows you. And that can be uncomfortable because God is perfect. He forgives our sins. He takes our pain. He heals our hurts. So when we, make our, when, we, when we make mistakes, when we put ourselves before God, or we look at the baggage that we have, we can feel unworthy. We can feel like we're a lost cause, that, God can, that we're beyond God's help. But Jesus reminds us, as we see in this passage, that his love is unconditional. He restores the brokenness of our lives. He sustains us in a way that only he can. He knows what we're struggling with. He knows who we're pretending to be. And that makes us uncomfortable because it touches some areas that are pretty sensitive. It's what he did with the woman. But he knows us. He's not repulsed by us. He's drawn to us. Because remember, he doesn't just know what we do, but he knows who we are. You see, our value isn't found in what we do. Our value is found in who we are as his creation, as his people. And I'd argue that the majority of people in this world, they probably want to be good. They want to have purpose. They want to make a difference. Even when someone's actions and decisions speak otherwise, my guess is that if you truly ask them, they probably wish they were making some difference in this world. You see, God knows who we are in our innermost being. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And another way to say that he knows is to say that he understands. He gets us, he sees us, he knows us. And lastly, he loves us. Despite what he knows, his love is always present. And it's his love which can sustain us and leave us never thirsty again. You know, we can feel sometimes like God is so far from us when in reality it's us who is far from him. He is close. He is simply waiting for us to recognize that he is there with us in every moment. And it's time that we forget the lies that we've been told, that we let go of the expectations that we put on ourselves, that we allow Christ's love to truly wash over us and influence how we live because Christ has no time for labels and the lies that we've been told. He knows, that the, tr tr he knows the truth because he is the truth. And I know that this takeaway is simple this morning, but there are people who are following Christ and people who aren't following Christ that need to hear this. There are people in this room who you've been following Christ your whole life, but you haven't let the implications of Christ's love truly impact how you live your life. Jesus told the woman in this passage that the water that he gives will, will quench her thirst so that she will never be thirsty again. And when we consider this, it's a pretty big statement because outside of air, water is a necessity of life. So Jesus is saying to her that he provides everything that she needs and more. He sustains, he truly satisfies, and it's time that we as Christians begin to live as if that's true, because it is. And if you aren't following Jesus this morning, well, today is a great day to experience what a relationship with Jesus can do. It truly satisfies. It brings purpose to our lives.
So it's time to let go of the hurts, let go of the expectations, the false identities, and see yourself as God sees you. An individual who is valuable, worthy of his love, who has meaning and purpose with something to contribute, who has free access to worship the Father. Because when we truly surrender ourselves to God's love, it allows us to see with Christ's perspective. And we begin to see how God is sustaining and bringing meaning to our everyday life. It reminds me of, of that first time you go to get new glasses or contacts, whatever you wear. I have contacts in right now. And your whole life, you don't even realize how blurry the world is. You're just going day to day, and you're like, hey, it must be normal. And then one day you realize, oh, yeah, my vision's kind of bad. I need to get some glasses. And you go and you get those glasses, and you put them on for the first time. And the things that seem so blurry become so clear. That sign that's so far away, you realize, oh, I can actually read that now. And things become clear. And I think that's how it, how it should be when we choose to follow Jesus. Our vision should become clear. We should have Christ's perspective. And the things that used to ruin our day now become minor annoyances because we realize, oh yeah, when I can see the full picture, I see Jesus there sustaining me in this moment. We begin to seek out people and relationships with intentionality because we know that's what Christ himself did. We don't simply focus on ourselves and our problems. We begin to ask the old phrase, what would Jesus do when he lived by that? Because here's the truth for us who, is, who are following Jesus this morning, is that Christ's love that we have experienced should cause us to respond to others as Christ has responded to us. We should all be having woman at the well encounters. We should be aware of the people who are around us and we should see the people that God has brought into our lives. We should notice those who our paths cross with even if they seem to have baggage or seem like someone that we normally wouldn't get along with. We don't know their story, but we need to see them. And once we see them, we need to take time to know them. A few years ago, or maybe even longer than that, I had the opportunity to go visit uh, the country of Turkey. And in the Middle East, in that portion of Asia, um, that was really where the foundations of Christianity began. It's where Jesus walked and lived his life. It's where much of the first church got started. And in Turkey, there's actually the ruins of Ephesus, which you read in the book of Ephesians. And it's where Paul started the church. And so it was really cool to see those ruins and to see where Paul walked and to see the auditorium he was kicked out of. And it was a really cool thing. But we had this tour guide who was taking us through the ruins of, of Ephesus and even other places in the area. And it, being in Turkey, he was a Muslim. And so at a portion in our journey or in our time together, he, he paused for a moment and he said, hey, before we move on, whenever I get Americans here, I just want to let them know one thing, that yes, I am a Muslim, but for the, more major for the majority of us in this country, we aren't like the Muslims that you see on TV. The ones that are starting wars, the ones that are violent and chaotic, most of us here are just good, kind, nice people. And it was true. Everyone I ran into in Turkey were good, kind, and nice people. But I'll never forget that encounter because there was this man, he just wanted to be known. And yes, I sympathize that he doesn't know Christ, but I also sympathize that so many people look at him with preconceived ideas that aren't true of who he truly is. He's a decent guy, he just wants to be known. And I won't forget that because it reminds me that we need to take time to listen. 
If we want to get to know people, we need to take time to listen to them. And we are in God's, so we don't get the immediate download of a person's backstory, but we can take time to listen, to ask questions. And when we do, we might be surprised that the person we, that we stereotyped or the person we thought was rude or grouchy or standoffish was actually a decent person with some stuff that they're going through. And once we know them, though, we must show them that we love them. Even if there are things that we don't want to know about that individual, even if they have a real and genuine baggage, we choose to love, we choose to point to Jesus, and we do that through our actions and through our words. Emily, you can come. But here's the thing, if, if we say that we love them, we better back that up by how we act. And when we live our lives this way, it helps us to realize that we are experiencing Christ's love for ourselves, and it changes how we approach the world around us. And so how do we begin this? Well, I have five quick things. Not gonna, it's not gonna take that long, though. Five things. How do we begin this? And the first one is to identify what you are holding on to. What is that thing in your life that is standing in the way between you fully understanding God's love for you? could be a reputation, it could be some ideas that in your mind that aren't true, it could be something that someone said to you, it could be something completely different, but identify that thing that is holding you back from God's love. And then once you identify that thing, contemplate Christ's love and forgiveness to you. What does that look like? It could simply be just spending some moments in silence and solitude, just thinking about how much he loves you and how great his forgiveness is. It could be spending time in prayer and, and talking to him about his love and, and asking him for his forgiveness and letting it sink deep into your heart. But contemplate how deep his love is. And then three, forgive yourself and let it go. Actually forgive yourself. Say those words in your head or out loud, forgive yourself and let that thing go. And then once you do that, it's important that we see, know, and love others. Because here's the thing, when we begin to see, know, and love others, and we begin to realize that, hey, God forgives that person, he loves that person, he cares for that person, it doesn't make it seem so strange that he would choose to love us too that he would see beyond our baggage if he's seeing beyond someone else's baggage. It begins to help us to realize that his love is, is there for us too. And then once you do those four things, you repeat the process. Because it takes time to rewire our minds in the framework of how we view ourselves and how we may be viewed by others. So we need to commit to contemplating his love, his forgiveness for ourselves. And then by offering it to others, it helps us to recognize that we ourselves can truly accept it. So our prayer this morning is this. I am seen, I am known, I am loved by God. And I say it to you, you are seen, you are known, and you are loved very deeply by our Father. Can we pray this morning? God, we thank you that you see us. We thank you that you know us. And most importantly, we thank you that you love us. I pray that your love would sink deeply into our hearts, deeply into our lives, that our motivations would not be our own, but our motivations would be you. 
Give us your perspective, God. Help us to let go of the things that we are holding on that we need to let go in order to see who we are through your eyes more clearly. I pray for freedom in this room. Give us your perspective. Help us to see that we are deeply loved, we are deeply valuable, not for what we do, but for who we are as your people, as your creation, as people made in your image. And so God, once again, we, we say these simple three words, phrases, I guess I should say. We are seen, we are known, and we are loved by you. Amen.